Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to our Monday edition of On the Tape. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined, as always, by Guy Adami and EY from SoFi. That's Liz Young from SoFi. Hi, Liz. Hello. Hi, Guy. What up, peeps? This is like the, the, the post-Super Bowl edition here. Some of us were big winners last night. I just got to tell you, I won. I've been playing my neighborhood pool in a bar. And, and one year, a couple years ago, I won three of the four quarters. No joke. Three of the Stop. four quarters. Last night, I won the third quarter. Okay, and I also want a little wager on the Chiefs. Anyone else have any action on this game here? Nah. So I have a yoga instructor who says you don't have to be in all the way, but you got to be in it to play. I didn't even play. I just watched. Guy, no money on the line. Guy, what do you got? You sure that's what he or she was referring to? <laughs> or family show here, guy. All poses. right, guy, guy, what about you in there? In the poses. Guy, you usually have a lot to say about sports the next day on our programs here. Nothing? Is it, that's it? I enjoyed the game a great okay. deal. I, the Chiefs came out. I mean, the second half was an entirely different game. I thought the Eagles' defense would be much better than they were. They didn't stop them once in the second half, which obviously is problematic if you're trying to win a football game. So good for the Chiefs. Uh, good for Patrick Mahomes, playing hurt, Chief Nation, the whole thing. Um, I was rooting for the Eagles, believe How, it or as not. A, wait, as a Giants fan? As a Giants fan rooting for the yeah. Eagles? Yeah, check out my Twitter account. It's at Guy Adami <laughs> on the Twitter. Just just so you just so you know, I, I deleted my Twitter app off of my phone on Friday. I didn't look at it all weekend long. How Something about that? happened. And I, no, was I'm it? just sick of it. I, you know, oh. what, and, and you know what the other thing is? You know what I did? I bumped up some of the other news apps. Okay, Wall Street hmm. Journal, Bloomberg, FactSet, Axios, FT, and I'm spending more time um, looking at those things. But that's for another podcast here. All right, let's get to it because we got a lot of economic data this week. I know, Liz, you're really focused on CPI Tuesday morning. There's some retail sales on Wednesday. There's also a lot of really interesting earnings announcements this week. We have Cisco. We have AMAT. We have Coca-Cola, Deer at the end of the week. So I'm going to be like closely looking for what a lot of those companies have to say just about you know kind of the demand environment, maybe certain pockets in different geographies. So we're going to hit that at the end of this pod. But also stick around. Guy and I had a great conversation with Olin Douglas. He is the portfolio manager at Motley Fool Ventures there, and we had a great conversation with Olin. All right, guys, let's get into this here, because last week, towards the end of the week, we had a little little different tone in the markets. Today, this is Monday, we're recording this right after the open. They're ripping a little bit here. Liz, what are your thoughts? There was like, you know, we got a lot of this kind of turn the page sort of stuff. Overnight last night during the Super Bowl, I was looking at my fact set uh, futures, and they were down, but now they were squarely up. What's going on here? Obviously, CPI is the most pivotal thing that we're waiting for. And look, I think it's going to set the tone for the whole week. It's happening tomorrow morning. 
if CPI comes in hotter than expected, it's almost going to, I think, the rest of the data barely matters, right? So if it comes in hotter than expected, I think it sort of flies in the face of the assumptions that have been going on so far this year, which were that inflation's coming down, it's comfortably coming down, it's coming down at a good clip, it's going to keep coming down at that clip. If we get stuck at a certain level, or if we start to have surprises on the upside, it changes the whole thesis for a lot of this rally, and it changes the rate story. I think you see an elevation in long rates. I think then you see a sell-off in some of the growthy stuff that we've seen a big rally in. But CPI is the big story tomorrow. There's also some other data coming in later this week that is important if CPI comes in kind of, you know, inconsequentially. Let's say it comes in right on the nose. There's other things like retail sales, right? We had a really tough December in retail sales, which surprisingly is characteristic of retail sales. Usually they don't do well in December. But what's going to happen with this data is that it likely looks like a big bounce back in retail sales. So people will start with that narrative about the consumer being strong and spending being strong. Always think about what drives that spending, though. Are people spending on credit cards? Because if they're spending on credit cards, that's low quality debt and you got to be careful of it. So I think there's a lot of cross currents this week. The mixed signals from data where half of it tells us good things, half of it tells us bad things are going to continue. We're going to finish the week out with the leading economic indicators index. And I know that's a mouthful. It's already seen nine consecutive months of contraction. This would be the 10th. So it doesn't say good things. The other thing I will say about this is that if you look back in history, and this this index goes back to the 1950s, so there's a decent amount of history, lots of recessions that we've seen with this index, there's always a couple months of fakeouts. So you see it pop back up above zero. It becomes a fake out. Everybody gets excited. Oh, look at that. We came out of contraction. Everything's going to be fine. So I wouldn't be surprised if we get a couple of those in the coming months, too. Guy, we have a 10-year yield at 371. It got as low as, what, 345, the 210 spread that you've been focused on. You say going 100 bips is at 83 here. There was an article in the journal, so this is just on the inflation front before we think about this CPI print. They had an article, which I think it's interesting. So we're starting to debate this. You know, you you highlighted last week how many times uh, Fed Chair Powell said disinflation. The Journal has an article out this morning, inflation is falling and where it lands depends on these three things. They're talking about goods, shelter, and other services. So talk to us, well, like, what are you focused on here? Because again, it feels like there's a debate back here and, and the 10-year moving higher is probably putting a fine point on that debate. I'm definitely focused on twos, tens. No matter what anybody says about it being different this time, Maybe I would agree with them that it's different this time, except that I think it's different. It's worse this time. I mean, we're doing it, obviously, in a rising rate environment where growth is slowing, balance sheet is trying to be reduced, where you have global central banks trying to act in kind. There's just so many weird things going out there, and you have an earnings slowdown as well. It's interesting, Macro Alf, somebody we had on our podcast, he actually submitted a tweet earlier saying that the market is probably more expensive here at 4100 than it was at 4800 in January of 2022. And quite frankly, I agree with him. The market has gotten itself expensive very quickly, but twos tens moving out to 1%, which again, I'll stand by that. I think it's headed to is 83 basis points now is not an encouraging sign. And rates going higher here in terms of 10-year, it's not suggestive that the economy's doing better. To me, it means inflation is still a problem. So I don't know. I think I'm totally with Liz on CPI tomorrow. I think that's a huge number. Uh, I think it's uh, personally, I think it's going to surprise people to more hot side. 
I think the prior month's CPI was revised higher. I think they're just sort of setting the tone for what we're about to see. And again, you see more and more Fed officials come out saying their job is not done by any stretch of the imagination. So they clearly know something. The fact that the market continues to either not believe them or disregard what they're saying I think it's going to be a problem going down, Dan. Well, it's interesting. You know, when you think about this, we're, we're maybe two-thirds, maybe three-quarters through S&P 500 earnings. And that's why, you know, some of these later cycle earnings reports are going to be really interesting to kind of hear because we're that much further into Q1 here. I thought there was an uh, interesting article in the journal. And, Guy, this is a theme that you've been talking about here, but it was about China. It was a don't count on China to save the world economy. And, you know, again, that was clearly impetus at, you know, post-financial crisis, 08, 09, all the stimulus they had here. And they make the point China's deeply in debt, its housing market is in distress, and much of the infrastructure that country needs is already built. And I think this is really interesting. Early indicators suggest the biggest effects of China's rebound will be felt at home rather than abroad. And, you know, this is one of the points that I want to make about major U.S. multinationals. We've been talking about Apple. We've been talking about Tesla, their reliance on not only manufacturing over there, but also a Chinese consumer, right? And when you think about what's going on from a geopolitical standpoint, you know, this whole balloon situation is interesting, okay? Now, a couple weeks ago, I made the point that the partisan fight over shooting down the balloon is really stupid. But I think that what's going on, the tit for tat with it is not, right? It, it could be a precursor for maybe them flexing their muscles as it relates to Taiwan. And maybe, Guy, as you've been saying, maybe this is just a look over here, don't look over there. But the precedent that was set last year with U.S. multinationals with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that's a real problem here. And I just, again, you know what I mean? Like, I just think that some of our companies might face the sort of nationalistic tendencies for our products, you know what I mean, in China. That will be a result of any ratcheting up of this economic Cold War with China guy. Look, Apple pulling out of Russia, Starbucks, McDonald's, it's not a big deal to their bottom line. I mean, obviously, it sends a statement. It sends the right statement. It was the right thing to do for a myriad of different reasons. But what is it going to affect in terms of their earnings? It, it's a nominal, if anything, effect. it's a rounding error. However, uh, since they set that precedent, if something were to happen between China and Taiwan, and again, just reading the tea leaves, it seems like we're on that course, they're going to be forced to do the same thing. And quite frankly, if they do the same thing, and if they pull out for the right reasons, that's going to be I'll use the word catastrophic to earnings and I think the market. And if they do the wrong thing and stay there, I think that's going to be catastrophic to the individual names on a one-off basis. So nothing good can come from this. And to your point, Dan, the precedent was set basically 12 or 13 months ago with those multinationals. I, I would say two things on this. So we all remember last year it began – Obviously, we were worried about inflation. We were worried about rates. And then there was the black swan of Russia, Ukraine that came out of nowhere. I am not by any means predicting that there's going to be a black swan somehow related to China. But some of this stuff, it, I think we can definitively say that geopolitical tension isn't going down, right? I don't feel great about the balloons. I don't think anybody feels great about what's happened over the last couple of weeks. The other thing I would draw people's attention to in markets, which I think just adds on to this sort of risk-taking rally that's been going on. If you look at emerging market debt, some of the highest returns year-to-date, so El Salvador, for example, is leading returns in EM debt. They're leading returns because they managed to make good 
on an $800 million bond, right? Everybody thought they would default and it was like, oh, they didn't default. If that's what we're using as a reason to buy things because they didn't default, that's just almost blind risk taking, right? So this just adds on to the pile. And then, you know, there was rallies in crypto. A lot of the stuff that's going on that has went on since January 1st is really, really risky stuff. And I don't think that that bodes well for the next few months for investors. Yeah, and the last point I want to make about this article about China not bailing the global economy out, and this is, again, Guy, a point that you've been making about inflationary pressures. It says the U.S. economy is unlikely to feel much benefit at all. Some analysts say since it has limited exposure to China's service industries, U.S. growth might even be squeezed if China's reopening pushes up demand for energy and raises global energy prices. So talk to me about that, because that is, you've been talking about this for months now. And and again, while we've had inflation readings come down from those high single-digit numbers, we know that the Fed is still targeting low single-digit numbers. But when you think about you know that, that kind of prior discussion that we just had where the inflation debate kind of settles out, you know what I mean? This is something that I don't think they have on their bingo card right now, That and they being the Fed. No, market participants are clearly discounting this. And I think you're right in terms of the Fed, or maybe they do, and maybe we don't give them enough credit. I mean, maybe they are focused on certain things. But, you know, I'll say this as well. The fact that energy, the underlying commodity, has really gone nowhere literally for the last six or eight months. Dan, you've been on this for quite some time. I think that's both a good thing and a bad thing, because personally, I think it's sort of setting up for the next leg higher. And any disruption to global supply chains or production or any geopolitical risk, I think takes it higher. So, you know, I think that card was played in terms of getting the inflation number down. However, unfortunately, uh, that card can no longer be played. I think energy goes up. And if you just look at the underlying equities, they would suggest similar. Exxon, by the way, made a new all-time high last week in the wake of a crude oil price that's basically doing nothing in a broader market that effectively went sideways all of last week. So we'll see. I think energy is still a problem. I think there's some people in the Federal Reserve that understand that. Whether they acknowledge it or not doesn't really matter. And again, it goes back to what they've been saying all along. They've been steadfast in this jargon, in this jawboning. And for whatever reason, Dan, the market's just choosing not to listen. What happened in the press conference a couple of weeks ago and then in, in further comments in the interview at the whatever that was, the Economic Club of New York or something, the market almost decided that Jay Powell declared victory on CPI. He's that He said, you know what? It's working. We're doing a pretty good job. And the market believed him and that, okay, everything goes according to plan and then CPI will go according to plan. It's not that easy. It's not going to be that easy. It's been reasonably easy to this point, I think, where rates have risen, CPI has come down, we've seen the peak, all of that. But the rest of it is not likely to be that easy. And he did not declare victory. He acknowledged that it's working and that the goods sector is definitely coming down. All the deflationary comments were about goods. They weren't about services. He did not declare victory and say, we're done. Everything's okay. As long as we just you know, do this the way that we've been telling you we will, everything's going to be fine. I think there's a hope that that would occur. But that's the stuff that has to come back out of the market if we start to get CPI readings that are surprising. You made a really good point. It's investors have made these decisions. The Fed and many of its governors are saying, listen, we're going to have rates higher for longer. They're saying that to you right now. And again, I think it was really that 10-year guy that got below 3.5%, and, and and maybe that was the thing. But to your point, you know, the, the twos just kind of stayed steadfast there, right? And so that was the thing indicating what the Fed is most likely to do. And, 
and again, that brings us back to this kind of stagflation environment here because, you know, if the Fed is going to keep rates higher for longer, that's going to be reflective of the twos. And then on the 10-year, like that's more, I guess, reflective um, of growth. Think about this, though. We are six weeks into this year. We have an S&P that's up a little more than 7%. We have a NASDAQ that's up 13%. And this is where it gets really hard, I think. You know what I mean? Because, again, you could have thrown a dart at the end of December, at anything on your main fact set screen, and you would have seen the stock go up double digits, you know what I mean, between now and you know then, okay? But now, when you have a lot of stocks discounting a lot of potential, like I, I think, headwinds, and then to your point, Guy, about valuation and what the macro ALF had, that would be Alfonso Pecatiello, right, of the macro compass here. I just nailed that pronunciation. Let's be clear. It gets a little more difficult from here. So, guys, think about this as we get through the end of Q4 earnings season. Give us a little, like, thought about, like, how would you encapsulate what we saw about visibility, about guidance, about, I guess, confidence. And and I want to make one last point about this because you kind of nailed this. Microsoft, right out of the gate, Satya Nadella had this conversation about really what he thought was going to be a very difficult environment. He wasn't even talking about months. He was talking about maybe years, about the pull forward for a lot of this stuff. That was early January, okay? That stock took off. It's up 12% on the year right now, you know, after getting giving, um, I think, mediocre guidance, but investors don't care. And that stock's trading about 25 times. So talk to us about what you heard out of S&P companies and some of the biggest ones and what valuations are right now, because at about 18 times current, it doesn't feel like that's where the S&P bottoms out after the sort of bear market we had over the last, call it, 13 months or so. The thematics that I've seen, you, you continue to see margin compression, which makes a lot of sense. They, companies can no longer pass on costs. We'll probably talk about Coca-Cola in a minute. They report at the end of the week. We'll see what their, I'm doing air quotes now, organic growth is because organic growth in their world is just code word for we've been able to pass on higher costs to the consumer. We've all noticed that companies are laying people off. That does not change on a dime. And that suggests that any clarity that they may have is not particularly good. And I think Microsoft, you mentioned it, that sort of encapsulate everything in a nutshell. To your point, Satya Nadella wasn't talking about a month or two months. He was talking about cycles and probably many different quarters. Again, when that stock reported earnings, closed that day at 244, I think, was trading 253 in the aftermarket. We collectively said, wait to the conference call. The conference call was not good. The next day, the stock was trading 233. And from there, the stock's going up over $40. I'm not sure really what on the back of, but again, it's taken a stock that might have been reasonably valued in the low 200s to expensive once again. So what I've heard from companies, I think in aggregate is things are slowing down. It is a challenging environment. We're laying people off. There's margin pressures that we're feeling. All of those different things. And again, what are you willing to pay for stocks in that environment? I don't think it's 18, 18 and a half times earnings, which is effectively where we are right now. And that's with the earnings part of the equation still probably around 220 or so, which is a bit of a pipe dream. I'm getting the sense that there's there's a lot of people out there saying, oh, yeah, I'm hearing about layoffs. I've seen it in the headlines, right? It's on the news, but it's not happening to me. It's not happening to my family. It's not happening to my friends. It's happening to tech and it's happening to big finance and Almost like well, they deserve it anyway, right? It makes me think of, and this is kind of, I'm, I'm going to draw a parallel that's not really a parallel, but back when the pandemic had just begun and it had hit San Francisco and it was sort of starting to hit New York, this is end of February 2020, I was on my last trip 
before everything got shut down, I was in Detroit, Michigan, giving a presentation and I pulled the room because they seemed like they weren't worried about it at all. They weren't worried about COVID. And I said, are you not worried because you don't think it's going to get here? Or are you not worried because you think you're going to get it, but you'll still be okay? And they categorically said, because we're never going to get it. It's not going to make it to Detroit. And what do you know? It made it everywhere, right? And it's almost as if there's a similar feeling right now where it's like, oh, it's on the coasts and the pain isn't going to spread inward or it's it's in certain sectors. It's not going to get anywhere else. And then that would be the shock that when it does, nobody was expecting it. I think you're spot on with that. And and this is the, the, the parallel, the correlations that people in the market typically make, you know, when they're looking to define a recession in ways that people understand, a recession is when your neighbor loses his or her job. A depression is when I lose mine. And that's to your point. If some if it's happening to somebody else, that's their tough luck, but we're going to be fine here. When it happens to you, it changes the equation considerably. And I think we're probably in that portion of the cycle where things start happening to people. And obviously, we're not wishing this on anybody. We're just trying to read the tea leaves a bit. And to your earlier point, Dan and Liz, listen, tech companies overhired. I don't think there's any question about that. They saw something that the rest of us didn't see, and they're getting towards levels that they probably should have been at all along. But it's not just in technology. We're seeing it in manufacturing. We're seeing it in services as well. And I think that's just the beginning. We highlighted a couple of weeks ago, Triple M said they are cutting 2,500 manufacturing jobs. They were very specific about that. But then also this morning, I think it was in the FT, Goldman CEO David Solomon was saying that he was too slow to cut jobs. We know that they had that 10% reduction in workforce. I know Guy, as a former Goldman, I, you knew that, that every year they used to cut, what, the bottom couple percent of their performers, no matter what environment was. So the fact that they cut 10%, they did it before earnings, that earnings was a disappointment also. So, and, and the guidance they gave, especially relative to many of its peers. All right, let's talk about some of these earnings this week because you just mentioned the Coca-Cola. You know, some of these consumer staples have come off, right? So we've seen this rotation, a risk on into a lot of tech, high beta, and we've seen staples, healthcare, even energy kind of have a little bit of a pullback over the last few weeks or so. There's some names reporting this week I think are really worth taking a look at. AMAT would be one of them, the supplied materials. They make um, semiconductor equipment. You think about the ban that the U.S. has had on advanced chips to China. A lot of manufacturing facilities are obviously in China. I think what AMAT has to say, Guy, is going to be really kind of important. We've seen some good outperformance in the SMH ETF. The truck semis up 20% on the year. Some of those biggest names in that uh, NVIDIA is up 40% on the year, nearly doubled um, from its lows in the fall. Taiwan Semiconductor, this is one that you and I have talked about a little curious here, up 27% of the year, especially if you consider the fact that there might be some other issues as it relates to China and Taiwan. You know, that's one where a lot of their manufacturing capabilities are in Taiwan. Talk to me about AMAT, how important it is to you. And then also Cisco, from just a communications equipment standpoint, we know that more of their sales are becoming recurring in software, security, that sort of thing. I think these are kind of two kind of not exciting names, but important names. I think AMAT to me is the one that stands out. I think the stock made an all-time high about 168 or so. I want to say basically this time last year, I think it was mid-January of last year, but you understand what I'm saying. And again, not coincidentally, when rates started to move higher, things started to fall apart. This stock's gotten off the mat a little bit in terms of the bounce we've seen from the October low. I think the stock's probably up 45, 50% since. Uh, but valuation, I don't think it's particularly attractive. And what's the environment that we find ourselves in, right? I mean, these are still deeply cyclical industries where there's double ordering went on without question. And AMAT, you would think, 
is going to feel the brunt of that. So I think this is going to be a fascinating quarter. And given the run-up that we've seen in the stock, I think this is one you want to start taking profits and not adding to on the long side. Yeah, and just the Cisco. I mean, there's, here's a name that's just unchanged. And again, I, just from a geographic uh, standpoint, I want to hear what they have to say about visibility and kind of what they think the headwinds are maybe in emerging markets and in Europe, that sort of thing. So that one's interesting to me. Liz, thoughts on on like semis in general? Because again, meant to be you know early cyclical, but they're really, they're dealing with supply chain issues that maybe have abated, the double ordering, um, some of the geopolitical stuff, geographic. I'm just curious how you're thinking about semis, because to me, they've always been a good indicator of when we are coming out of some sort of malaise. And some of the stocks in the space uh, kind of reflect the fact that it looks like we're ready to go. Others just Intel misexecuted that sort of thing. I'm just curious, holistically, how you think about semis? I haven't changed my stance on them. I have not been a semis bull for a while, but I would become bullish if we have a drawdown and we get, let's say, below 3,500 on the S&P because of that cyclicality factor. I think what's good for the industry group right now is exactly what you mentioned. Some of the sort of external factors or the stuff that they were dealing with from a supply chain perspective have worked themselves out. So we don't have that to worry about anymore. But now it's much like a lot of other sectors and particularly sectors like retail, where it's all about execution. And if the company is managing its inventory well and managing its production well, it's going to do better. But that's how the market should reward companies. It should be based on execution. It should be based on fundamentals. So I think it bodes well for semis that some of the the broader stuff has sort of dissipated. The broader headwinds have dissipated but I'm still not ready to buy here. Yeah, last one on my list to keep an eye on is Airbnb. And, and again, you know, I'm just curious to hear what they have to say about just, you know, we've had some mixed reports from from the Expedia. We know that they own the Verbo, the VRBO, but really interested for a stock that's gone from 80 to 120. It's pulled back um, a little bit. Let's hear how this U.S. consumer, how they're still thinking about spending on, on these sorts of, you know, on travel and, and vacationing and the like. This is not really attached to kind of business spend there, I suspect, you know, this is one that the guidance at best will be murky. And from a valuation standpoint, the way the stock has moved, not particularly that compelling at these levels. All right, guys, just quick market wrap here. Thoughts on this week, because it really is the main event is tomorrow morning, the CPI. And it feels like a VIX at 21, a bit above where it was just a couple of weeks ago, when we were saying that was screaming, you know, complacency. How are you feeling about this? Because if we have a scenario where it surprises the CPI to the downside, we're going to have a VIX that's a teenager again, really. So yeah, no doubt. Look, if CPI comes in softer than expected, and I'm not sure exactly, I'm trying to find what the whisper numbers are out there, but let's just say it's softer than whatever the whisper number is. You're right. You're going to have a teenager in terms of the VIX, and you're probably going to see that August high in the S&P 500, which I think was 4,280 or 4,300 or thereabouts. And it's going to leave me scratching my head without question. The flip side of that, of course, is if we see a hotter than expected number, I think this rally, as misguided as it is, I think it's going to manifest itself in terms of the self we're about to see. And I think that could set the stages for the move that I think we all see coming down to 3,400 or so in the S&P. Liz, do you see 3,400? Because I think I see next stop 3,800. That was that like that late December sort of consolidation right before we took off in January. And and again, I mean, is there is there a way that the CPI print is just kind of like you know it, it's a bit of a, a bit a bit a bit of a head fake here? You know what I mean? Whatever the number is, they they sell it. Is and that that could be the scenario that I see? It could be just inconsequential. It could be exactly as expected and nothing happens, which would be you know another Groundhog Day. 
I think in order to get to 3,400, we probably need a couple other pieces of data to fall apart, the ones particularly that bulls have been hanging their hat on. So the consumer would have to show some stress, whether that's the labor market breaks down a little bit more and the consumer and labor market are very closely connected or retail sales disappoint again. Something something else would have to happen. Housing, we're getting some housing numbers this week uh, in order to get to 3,400. But I think we could get to 3,800 pretty easily on, on disappointment in CPI. All right. Well, three bears here. We're still doing it here, people. Um, <laughs> you're, you're not getting a respite from that one. All right. Guy Adami, Liz Young, thanks so much, guys. Stick around. When we come back, Olin Douglas of Motley Fool Ventures. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. Olin, it's great to have you with us. Great meeting you down in South Beach at the iConnections Conference. I thought that was an amazing event. I hope you had a great time there as well. But before we start, before we get into Motley Fool, Motley Fool Ventures, what you're doing, your process, I want to know a little about you. Tell us the Olin Douglas story. Love to hear it because I think people are always fascinated I know I am by the backstories. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, uh, thanks, Guy and Dan, for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. Uh, you said Olin Douglas. I think the backstory for me, the short one, I'm a Baltimore native, kind of born and raised in Baltimore, spent some time in Texas and various areas there. My background is a lot of finance. <laughs> you know, I uh, used to work for KPMG, worked for a few banks along the way in various positions there ultimately ended up at the Motley Fool, where I've been for quite a while. It's interesting. A lot of people don't realize that Baltimore, nobody ever talks about it, but I will tell you, when I was in college, outside of New York City, Baltimore was one of those places that had a lot of these boutique investment banks, a lot of places that people never heard of, but a lot of people found themselves in Baltimore. And that city, since when I was in school in the 80s, has come a long way. Um, so speak to your time in Baltimore, because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I was in, it's interesting you mentioned it. I was in Baltimore working at KPMG at the time professionally, and that was in the Leg Mason Tower. You talk about those uh, boutique banks down there, uh, right across the street from T. Rowe Price, which was there, and you had Alex Brown. So there were quite a few kind of investment banks in that small town that really were influential. As you know, as a young uh, kid kind of growing up, you see those big names in those towers, and you could just kind of smell the money, right? And it's just, oh, man, that's, you know, <laughs> I like that. You know, a little Old Bay and a little 
little money, that's uh, that's heaven, right? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I grew up in the 80s going to Baltimore. My mom is from Baltimore and born and raised. And uh, I spent a lot of time at that inner harbor. And then as I got older, starting to play lacrosse, it was other than where I grew up in central New York, it was obviously the hotbed of lacrosse. So I found myself at Homewood Field seeing some Syracuse lacrosse games down there. Syracuse usually got the better of them. Um, oh, let's... Let, let's talk a little bit about Motley Fool. You know, I came into the business in the late 90s and I was a, a public markets investor focused on tech. And Motley Fool had a really unique brand. And, you know, I think it was one of the first really online, what, what do you call it, like blogs or subscription services where you guys did hardcore tech research, idea driven. And I remember there was probably newsletters and, and this was really before this proliferated. Talk to us a little bit about the brand. How did Motley Fool get started? And obviously I had no idea until we met you that they had a venture arm. And I want to hear a lot about that too. So yeah, so I've been with the, uh, the Motley Fool uh, about 22 years. I've been there for a, a little bit, but I wasn't one of the original ones, but um, know, know the founders well. They started, I believe it's 1993, 1995. They uh, started for a newsletter. I believe they uh, stole the invite list from one of their cousin's wedding, and that's how they started uh, sending out the, the, the newsletter. And again, it was this idea things have changed so much, but there was a time where ordinary investors couldn't, you couldn't just buy stocks without going to a broker and paying $50 commission and, and that sort of thing. And their idea was you can, we can teach you fundamental analysis and in the times of changing technology is there and, and we can help people to invest in stocks. And so that, that was the process. It was very irreverent at the time. Everyone was head young. Everyone was young, had tons of energy to do <laughs> to do research and, and, and everything else. It really kind of took on. And it's interesting because you make that the persona of the Motley Pool is is like young and, and, and hip and like you said that irreverent. But at the core, we really speak to entrepreneurs, you know. And these are these are people who are used to kind of um doing things a little bit differently, not following the tried and true path. Calling yourself the Motley Fool says a lot about your, <laughs> you know, about your your take on life, right? You're not afraid to be different, you know, you're not going to take yourself too seriously. They, the company likes to say they're dead serious about their investing, but everything else they want to have fun with. Your fund invests in very early stage companies, anywhere from two to $5 million in annualized revenues, which almost by definition means you're making a bet on management. You're making a bet on a CEO. You're making a bet on a person. So speak to that process because I think that might be more difficult than people realize. Yeah, it is. It is different. It's a different type of investing than when you do in the public markets. And just just diving into that two to five million number, when we look at that number really is a quantitative number to help us get at qualitative attributes. <laughs> so it's almost the opposite of what you use. Usually you take qualitative attributes and, and do the other way. But for us, that two to five million we can answer that question is like, can a company sell beyond their friends and family? Most, for most startups to get to those numbers, you got to go out there, hit the pavement, fight, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat to get some deals. And can they be successful at that? So we, so that number just tells us that. Can they hire and retain talent? It's hard to grow to that size as a one-person shop. So let's see if you can bring people. If you're going to be a big company, that's probably your most important skill. Is, is bringing along great people. I don't know if Dan found Guy or Guy find, found Dan, but you know that was an important uh, connection that had to happen, right? And you can tell a lot about people from who they hire. And then lastly, it's like me being a former uh, accountant, I was a CPA at KPMG, Pete Marwick. Do they have a professional infrastructure? Like, kind of, can I, <laughs> is there something there where I can actually see a future where I can rely on the financials? And those, so those things are all in that two to $5 million revenue. And it's a nice, 
encapsulation. So wait, wait a second. You you are an accountant by education and by profession, but you seem and no no disrespect for the accountants listening out there, but you seem far too hip to be an accountant. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. Did you realize that you know your personality and your skill set lent itself to doing exactly this. At what point did you say, you know what, this accounting stuff is interesting. It gives me a great base, but I got to be doing something more. be honest with you, before I took my first accounting class, <laughs> I, knew, <laughs> <laughs> I knew I wanted to be in business. And like, in all honesty, I grew up in the, I really did in Baltimore, like in the inner city. For me, a banker was a teller. And that's, that's what I knew about bank investment. And I knew I wanted to get in the business world, no connections, no way to do it, <laughs> no, no, no way to that path. And as I thought about what I wanted to major in, I saw accounting looked as boring as most people think it is. But what I realized is that every job that I was interested in, they would accept an accountant. Like an accountant could be anything, but everyone couldn't be an accountant. And so I went for the major that gave me the most optionality. So I'm, I'm doing options at 21, you know, on my life, you know, taking call options on that, on my life. Yeah. But so at the time though, venture was not a big business, right? 20 years ago. And I'm assuming that you just found your way into the investment world. Talk to us a little bit about how you got into venture investing and really about the growth, because it seems like, you know, you've actually had a front row seat for that. And, and you came into it, like you just said, with a different set of skills than a lot of people do that, how they come into venture. You know, a lot of people, well, you, you hear this term all the time, their style shift. They were public market investors and they thought the return profile in, in private was more attractive. So that maybe they went that way or maybe they were former founders and had an exit and they said, you know what? I think I could pick companies like mine, you know, five years ago and, and see that sort of explosive growth. What were some of the things that attracted you to venture and talk to us about the growth of venture over your time at Motley Fool? The thing that attracted me to venture is um, being a CFO, really getting a chance to look at companies from the bottom up. And in auditing, you do that as well. I mean, you're coming in and you're really in the guts and the bowels of a company and, and analyzes them up down. And, and what I say to uh, you know, we, the Motley Fool has some great investors on it, but I said, which, we're doing the same job to some degree, but coming from different angles. When you're looking at public companies, you're trying to find kind of pieces of information to pull together to get the right story. And as a operator, if I will, in finance, I have a fire hose of information. I have access to everything. And my job is kind of wading through information to find the truth as opposed to looking for little, uh, you know, planets among the stars. I really just kind of enjoyed that and just watching people see that. What I, what I tend to say is for me, the financial statements are the final out and for others, it's the starting point. So I started to realize that from a venture capital standpoint, that's really a huge advantage where I can go into early stage companies before the financial picture is clear for everyone and I can identify the markers of success before they show up on financials. And you know, I got into venture from The Motley Fool. We had a, a subsidiary in the UK. They were moving in a different direction. We structured a, a management buyout, kept a minority interest. So we kind of backed into venture. We ended up getting like a 4X return on that. And I'm like, wow, I think this is kind of a cool deal. <laughs> what were some of the technologies that you guys were focused on that really kind of said that, you know, not only you, you obviously you had that deal, you had that restructuring. And then, you know, again, you probably had to try a bunch of different things out because it was kind of a new business line for you. What were some of the technologies that really kind of, I guess, gave you the confidence to continue building out Motley Fool Ventures? You know, was it the confluence of uh, mobile 
mobile and social and broadband and, and the app, you know, world that was built in and around that? Was it enterprise software, you know, being built in the cloud? What were some of the trends that really kind of gave you guys the confidence to say, this is a thing for us at Motley Fool? We did pilot programs for about five years where we invested in everything just to test to see where we had that edge, that, trying to answer that question that you exactly asked. And what came apparent to us is the focus of our fund eventually came digital transformation, which is we were looking all around us and even inside of the company itself at how technology was totally overhauling the way business was done. And not just at the headlines, but like fundamentally, like the, you're, you're buying, you know, software applications, you're moving to the cloud. And we said that this theme of digital transformation, which is not necessarily new, but with us, the twist is that we're looking at it really at that stage of mass commercialization where, you know, where large companies are starting to buy it. So we wouldn't be investing in Bitcoin, if you will, or something like that. And But not because of any, no reason other, and cannabis also, no, it's just an emerging industry. There's a lot of things to be figured out. We don't want to invest in that that part of the cycle. But, you know, when as things start to get into the mainstream, we find there's still plenty of money to be made. And it's a really one of the few kind of risk management <laughs> <laughs> elements that you have in venture capital because it's it's all offense all the time. It's interesting. I mean, there the differences between the public and the private markets are vast. One of the main differences, and we can have a conversation about price discovery in today's world, but in the public markets, there is price discovery every single day with tens of thousands of people, you know, coming to a price that they're willing to buy and sell a single equity, commodity, security, whatever it is. Obviously, in the private market, it's a little bit different. To a certain extent, you're relying upon founders a lot of times to tell you what they think they're worth. What's interesting this last year is the divergence between the public and the private markets in terms of valuation has probably never been greater. Speak to that because I don't want to say that's a problem. It probably creates a lot of opportunity, but it's something you need to navigate. Yeah, it is. And you're, and you're exactly right. And thinking about that, that Molly Fool, living in the public world, me in the private world, I, I feel like I'm always in touch with what's going on. And every private company, you know, is dreaming to converge to the public markets. And so there is a point, usually the IPO in the year after, what I would call the big reconciliation, where you find out what a company is really worth. And I think what has happened is even though the time from public to private has been shorter, the cost of running a business has decreased and people are just getting more and more excited about the potential and how fast things can grow. And to some degree, there's a there's a basis to that. You think about, um, and we work and not to pick on them. And I mean, this is actually, it's, it's been a troubled public stock. But if you bought that at the level where I invest, you're still at 100x. I mean, it's, the, the, you know, it's, <laughs> there's a different definition of, of success, you know, in, in, the, in the private markets where you count your returns in multiples as opposed to percentages. And that, that leads for people to get very aggressive with the pricing. The, my finance background, we do a discounted cash flow on every single company we invest in. And then we toss it out the window because it's because it's just not relevant. But that's not the point. The point is that they're on a path where DCF and price earnings is gonna matter, or, you know. And you have to make sure that there's at least some sort of reasonable scenario that you can envision that makes that work. And you know, people will talk about companies that are 20, 30, 40 times sales, but these companies are growing at 100, 200, 300 percent in two, three years if they hit their targets. They're back into that range. And I think a lot of it is. Venture capital is really about if I overpay now, how fast can this company grow into the right valuation? And when you get exuberance, when you get competition, prices go up. It's economics, right? <laughs>
So, so thinking about that, the relationship between you know public markets and, and the thing that Guy and I stare at every day and, and the mark-to-market nature of that, so the scorecard, and then you think about in the public markets, and, and again, you, you know, your point is a great one. I mean, if you are doing early-stage investing, by the time you have an exit, I mean, it could be a total flop in the public markets. It doesn't really matter. That's not the game that you are playing. You're playing identifying great management teams, great ideas, disruptive ideas, you know, all that sort of stuff. So talk to us a little bit about where you think we are, because, you know, we, we talk to a lot of VCs and they speak to this lag from the public markets to the private markets. Maybe it's six to 12 months, that sort of thing. And, you know, the public markets in 2021, a lot of these innovative tech companies that were trading at crazy valuations because they had these massive pull forwards, right, due to the pandemic, they started correcting, you know, in early 2021 and, and throughout the rest of the year. The major averages, the NASDAQ didn't top out until late 2021, right? And the S&P until January 2021. And so talk to us a little bit about where you think we are in the cycle. I know that there's a lot of VCs who think that there's some big marks yet to be taken, um, you know, in 2023, meaning marked downs on valuation. And until we have that, we can't really get to a bottom as far as valuations are concerned. Uh, and I'm just curious your thought on all that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, and I agree with a lot of that, but uh, – uh, as again, we go back to where I'm talking, looking at the early stage companies. An analogy I talk about a lot of time is, you know, the uh, late stage. They're like college, just like college, and I'm and I'm investing in sixth graders. The labor market it matters kind of soda, but not really, right? There's time, there's time to work through all this. What does matter is the public markets are like your parents, and when your parents get laid off. Everybody feels it. You know, it may take a little while, but that flows through the whole family. And I think that's where we are now in the early stages is that, you know, what's, you know, wherever there's job security at the, at the breadwinners, which is, you know, the public companies, if that doesn't resolve itself, it's going to start to flow down. And so where I think we are in the private markets, especially in the early stages, is you are going to see a lot of valuation corrections. There's two things happening under the hood at the early stages. Uh, one, great companies can always find funding. There's still a lot of capital out there. So if, and a lot of those strong early stage companies are going back into the markets and raising money at the previous valuation. They're basically building up their balance sheets. And that's taking even more money. Any company that is average to failing, they're out there scrambling, trying to conserve cash, trying to extend the runway until a better day happens. And I don't think that's going to happen in time. So you're right. You're going to see a lot of marks. You're going to see a lot of small exits, that sort of thing. But the best companies are going to survive. I just was in a meeting the other day, and I won't name the company because I'm going to talk about it, but they have 180 months of cash. <laughs> you know, They're not worried about the next 12 months. Olin, your world is extraordinarily granular in what you need to do. With that said, you have to have sort of a macro view. You got to be looking at the world from 37,000 feet or so. So what do you think about the landscape right now? I mean, we're coming off a year where a lot of things repriced. I mean, the Fed became part of the equation for sure. 23 is going to be, I think, an interesting year to see how we navigate. What are your thoughts on just sort of the macro environment? If you think about the macro environment over the next, I say, 12 to 18 months, and honestly, all the way through to the election, it's going to be choppy. No one's going to have a lot of visibility in, in what to do, and that's going to slow things down. But long term, which is when you're in private markets, seven to 10 years, right, is your horizon. I'm super bullish on technologies that are coming out, AI in, in all its forms, from generative to, to the big data. All the technological advances are happening make me very, very excited about the future. When you think about the pandemic, uh, there was a McKinsey study that said businesses accelerated their digital transformation by seven years in the span of one year. 
that saved a lot of companies. And it's hard to believe that a corporation is going to find that solution and then put it back in a box and never look at it again, right? And so I think what the pandemic really solidified is that technology, and a lot of that comes from startups and, and early stage as well, they're a quick solution to problems that, that you need to solve right now. And so from where I am, I'm very bullish about the future for you know, for venture. It's going to be bumps, but. Yeah, there, w there will be bumps. Let's talk about um, AI. You just mentioned this because, you know, these large language models, this, this open AI's chat GPT, um, you know, it's kind of taken the tech world by storm, both private and public markets. If you think the way Microsoft and Google are, are battling it out on this front, we've seen huge market cap shifts in those two companies just in the last week or so since we've been talking about this. But we've also seen companies like Google enter the private market markets, obviously those companies have always made investments in the private markets, right? But they are throwing around big numbers, right? For pre-revenue companies. How hard does that make your job as you're meant to find some of these early founders, some of these early technologies, these business models, when a company like Alphabet can just invest $250 million in, a, in an engineering team, giving them, to your point, 180 months of runway, really, if you think about it, it, it makes your job kind of hard, doesn't it? To some degree, no, but at the early stages, it's, it's like college recruiter coming in and, and looking at my kids in, in, in high school. I want that. I want that exit. I want that. I want to put $10 million into a company and have it bought for $250 million a few years later. It's it's a huge win for us. I think over half of all the M&A exits are under 100 million. You know, you, you get the headlights, you get the figmas for the 20 billion, but it's like acting. You know, that's those are the stars. I mean, most of most of these transactions are relatively small. And we actually need the Googles and the Apples and companies to come in and buy these companies for 100 million for 200 million. I'm actually speaking specifically though, like for instance, uh, Alphabet just invested 250 million in Anthropic, they are not buying them. That's not, a, you know, it, it is not an exit yet. So, so to me, you know, we're seeing some eye popping numbers, eye popping valuations for pre-revenue companies. And so I would just suspect that, you know, having that sort of competition, that is an early stage company, make no bones about it here. You know what I mean? And I wonder a little bit, what are some of the lessons that we've learned about due diligence on the VC front over the last few years, especially as you think about crypto and web three, Obviously, the FTX thing stands out. And, you know, there was a lot of money just being thrown at a founder telling a great story in a really hot space. And we've seen that again and again and again. And I wonder if we're going to see the same thing with some of these AI technologies, because the headlines read like this, you know, the secret weapon in this AI chatbot is X Google engineers or X this engineers or whatever. We don't know what the revenue models are just yet. And from where I'm sitting, it really looks like the large platform companies are going to be the ones to really take out a lot of the value right now. I I, I can see that in, in where you probably live, what are some of the applications that are going to be built in and around this? And that's probably, a, a, you know, for you as an early stage investor, probably the really big opportunity around AI right now. To your point, there's two things I would say for that. You're, you're right. You know, coming in, investing in the companies, one of the dirty little secrets of venture capital is the most important transaction is the next raise. We get the marks. Because if I invest in that company, like I'm doing, I invest in it at $50 million valuation. It doesn't have to get bought. If Microsoft comes in and values it at, it puts in $250 million and values it at a billion, that's a huge win for me. I mean, it's a tremendous win for me. And that's a win that happens today versus the exit seven to 10 years from now. So for us, Microsoft is not going to come in and put hundreds of million dollars into a company with $2 million in revenue, right? So for me, 
the key is who is that person who has sold that solution to a bunch of smaller companies and are getting traction and are starting to get known and finding that company before Microsoft, who, you know, can't get out of bed for a hundred million dollars, right? You know, before they kind of come down the road and find the company. So I'm trying to find them before before the big money comes. So here in the United States, we live in a democracy. One person, one vote. I get it, the whole thing. I'm a family of five, one person, one vote. But inevitably, my wife's vote's the only one that matters. Here's why I bring that up. Because in the VC world, there are basically four questions you guys and gals ask, and you ask it a myriad of different ways. But here are the four questions. Do I like you? Do you know what you're doing? More importantly, do I know what you're doing? And then fourth is, can you make money for me? Now, the reason I bring up the democracy thing, because I got to tell you something, if they check box four and you can't figure out the other three, it might not matter. So speak to that sort of mindset and process. Yeah, and that, and that's that's exactly right. And <laughs> and and what happens with that four is like it's if you don't nail, do you know what you're doing, and do I know what you're doing? That's the heart of almost all the dysfunction in venture capital, right? You're, you're on a seven year journey that goes up and down and up and down. If people don't un- really understand and buy in and can add value in ways that makes them more than just a, a ATM, <laughs> you know, for you, uh, it just makes it really hard to go through the natural cycles. You know, it's we all draw the straight line of up and to the left, but in reality, there's lots of things that happen over a seven year period. But you're, you're exactly right. And everyone puts different emphasis on those questions. There are some people think about personality. Do I like you? Like, are we back in middle school again? The answer is yes, because uh, the, the average venture fund lasts longer than the average marriage. And it's much harder to get rid of your LP than your spouse. So you better like somebody before you invest in them because you're going to be around for, for quite a while. Guy and I get this question all the time for people in the public markets. They're saying, hey, listen, you know, last year, 2020 was brutal, right? It was a bear market. We hadn't had one of those in a while. The last one we had was so quick, right? In in the beginning of 2020, Black Swan event. And, you know, months later, we're kind of making new highs. So my question to you is that are we close to a bottom as far as private tech valuations? And what are, what are some of the signs that you would look for? Because, you know, in, in the public markets, there's no shortage of metrics that, that a lot of people speak to. And, 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 you know, we also know that two consecutive down years in the public markets is, is a very rare sort of occurrence. What are some of the signs that that'll make you feel like tech early stage venture investing is bit back in the all clear here. I'll give you two of them. One is more macro and, and one is um, a little bit more specific. But right now, the exit window is closed, right? There's no IPOs. SPACs are like spam. M&A is down. And as long as the lid is on private company venture capital, it's at best, it's going to hold things steady. You know, things are not going to explode until there's a way out of private companies. But more specifically, I think about you know layoffs and just the trend of it. We have to get in a growth mindset. Right now, the best performing companies in my portfolio are ones that are focused on efficiency. You know, I tell them I put my old CFO hat on, and I would say that I don't want to talk to a single vendor unless they can tell me that they can save me money and they can do it now. And if they can't do that, put them in the back of the line because that's all I care about. You know, things need to change. We have to say like. I got the CFO, the CEO is on me. We got to grow the company, you know, help me find things that can make things better. When you start hiring people, that's a sign that that mentality is changing. So for me, looking at that rate of the big company layoff announcements, I imagine we probably have another quarter or two before you really see the uh, downturn. What you're seeing right now is all those companies who are hoping 
that they could solve things before the end of the year and they're doing their budget for the next year and there's a little bit of a come to Jesus happening. That'll play out this quarter, next quarter, and then you, you'll get a sense of uh, how people write. This is, this is the year of the realist. Love that. That's a year every year for me because I'm as real as it gets. You're raising capital under an SEC 506C exemption, which means you can talk about it publicly. So let's talk about it. You know, where do you want how big do you want to get? You know, how do people find you? All those good things that people need to know. So yeah, we are out there. Our first fund that was in fund in 2018 was a 150 million fund, following a lot of the themes and theses we talked about on on the program. We're out now, we're raising a 300 million dollar fund. And uh, we'll be probably raising that through the, through the middle of this year. We, again, are open to um, institutions, you know, for large part and some, uh, some high net worth individuals. They can reach us at info at foolventures.com. And it's very, it's very easy to talk to us. We can, uh, you know, we do a little bit of qualifying, you know, just conversation. And then we open up the uh, deal room and you can see everything that you want to see. Olin, it was great to meet you in South Beach. It's great to have you here with Dan and myself on the tape. Best of luck going forward. And we look forward to talking again in the future. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed this. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.